Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. I'm your host and Bible guide, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. Throughout this COVID-19 pandemic, Christians have been adjusting and finding new ways to encourage and edify one another. One of the things we're trying here at End of the Word is a live discussion program every Thursday evening at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. The program is called Going Deeper Online, and in it I will facilitate a conversation about the previous week's readings in the RMM Bible Reading Plan with several of my friends and fellow users. If you join us live on the End of the Word YouTube page or the End of the Word Facebook page, you can submit questions, and we'll leave some space at the end of each program to address them. You can also send in your questions over the course of the week via the Facebook page. Whether or not we keep doing this after the end of COVID-19 or not, only the Lord knows. But it is a privilege to open the Bible together and to hear from one another what the Lord is saying through His marvelous Word. Thanks be to God. So without further ado, welcome to another episode of Going Deeper Online. Hello there, everybody. This is Pastor Paul Carter here from Cornerstone Baptist Church in Aurelia and the host of the End of the Word podcast, joining you again for another episode of Going Deeper Online. We have some new guests tonight we're very excited about, but let me introduce first, I won't say our old timers, that doesn't sound very nice, but our steady regulars. How about that? We have uh, Dr. Miranda Webster from the great state of Texas. We have uh, Pastor Jesse Stewart from Glendale, Kentucky. We have uh, Crystal Humphrey from Calgary, Alberta, and then we have Pastor Peter Mahaffey from uh, Toronto, and then uh, joining us all the way from the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, the heart of the Atlantic, as I like to say. We have Pastor Stephen Bray, and then down from uh, Southern Ontario there, and uh, known to you probably uh, from TGC Canada, we have Wyatt Graham. So welcome to all of you. Thank you very much for joining me tonight. Great to be here. Well, uh, before we open our time in prayer, which we'll do in just a minute, I want to do a little housekeeping uh, tonight. Uh, first of all, if, if you're watching or listening and you haven't yet got a copy of the uh, RMM Bible Reading Plan, I would love for you to do that. You can pick one up at the, uh, the website for the podcast, www.intotheword.ca. Just click on the About tab, and uh, they'll give you some information about the reading plan, and then you can also click on a link and download a copy. You can also get it through the app, uh, the Into the Word app. You can find it there. And also, you could probably pick that up uh, on the internet just by Googling the RMM or Robert Murray McShane Bible Reading Plan, and it's available in a variety of formats. Uh, one of the other things I want to let you know is that as of June 1st, so this is June 4th, so as of June 1st, all donations that come in through Into the Word, either through the app uh, or through the website, will be directed uh, through that ABWE account that we've set up for pastoral crisis benevolence. Uh, through South Africa. So as, as we were talking about last week, this uh, pandemic is affecting people in the developing world in far different ways than it's affecting us here. And uh, here it's often a matter of sheltering in place, social distancing. Uh, obviously, uh, we're concerned for the frontline workers and those who are vulnerable in the uh, long-term care facilities. But uh, in the developing world, this is a life or death crisis for everyone and particularly uh, for pastors. And so we've set up an account through ABWE uh, across borders for world evangelism. And uh, I, I am 
personal friends with the pastor in South Africa who facilitates this. He drives out to these rural villages and uh, he supervises the distribution of these funds. So 100%, every single penny that is given through the app or through the website will be directed to that account. And this is a great time for us to stand with our brothers and sisters in the developing world who are being extraordinarily hard hit by this pandemic. So if you can give, we would love for you to do that. All right, with all that out of the way, Pastor Jesse, could I get you to open our time in prayer tonight, brother? Absolutely, let's pray together. Thanks, man. Father God, we thank you for the opportunity to dive deeply into your word. God, you've exalted your name and your word above all things, and we want to do the same thing here in this place. And so would you help us to do that? Uh, Lord, your word is a lamp to our feet. It's a light to our path. It shows us where to go, gives us direction. And so, Father, would you and the Son send your spirit to illumine the text and to guide us into all truth tonight? Would you do your work through your word? And we pray, God, if anyone's listening who does not know you, would you grant them eyes to see and ears to hear, and a heart to understand, uh, Lord, what you're saying through your word. In Jesus' name we ask, amen. Amen, 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 amen. Well, thank you. Uh, one of the things that we like to do here uh, in order to help our readers uh, enjoy their time in God's word, understand what they're reading, is to provide introductions to new books and letters that we encounter over the course of the week's readings. This week we encountered two uh, new books, new letters, uh, unless I miscounted or missed one. Uh, the first was we read through the whole book of Jude. That took us all of a day. Uh, one morning's readings. And, uh, and then we also read six chapters into Revelation. Uh, so Peter, I was going to ask you to go first, give us a little walkthrough, a little introduction to Jude. And then I know Wyatt has been studying uh, Revelation for a number of weeks, even a couple of months, as, uh, as I can track anyway on social media. And uh, so that'll give him a few minutes. We thought we'd throw you something easy just to get you started, Wyatt. You can introduce Revelation in just a minute. Perfect. But uh, Peter, why don't you introduce us to the letter of Jude? Yeah, so I'll, I'll be real brief, just kind of cover the overall theme. So Jude, of course, is written by Jude, who was the brother of James and also the brother of Jesus, though he, in the letter, calls himself a servant of Jesus Christ. Um, the purpose of the letter or the theme um, is really verse 3, where he says, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. So that's really what the, the whole letter is about is Paul, uh, not Paul, Jude is writing saying, I'm writing to you so that you would contend for the faith because there have been uh, individuals who have crept into the church who are not only teaching false doctrine, but are living falsely um, or not living according to right doctrine. And so he then goes further on to describe these false teachers. And it's pretty horrific what he writes. And it's, it's kind of very similar to um, to Second Peter 2. Yeah. Or Second Peter, sorry. Um, very similar themes. And so not only is he calling them to contend for the faith in the midst of this, but he's also then near the end, also calling for them to persevere in the faith um, and to wait for the coming of our Lord. So that's really the, the main idea. We're not sure who these Christians were, what church it was, and that's unknown to us. Um, but they're call he's calling them to contend for the faith and to persevere in the midst of these false teachers. So. 
And uh, did you want to take a stab at explaining in your mind what what you think? I mean, we don't know, but what you think the heresy or the or the issue was that had crept into the church? Yeah, I didn't really spend a lot of time thinking about that. Um, but most commentators have uh, said that it was very similar to what was going on in Second Peter. Um, yeah. So, you know, I don't know how um, accurate that is. I don't know if anyone else has any thoughts on that or, but. Yeah, well, I haven't read anything other than that. Meaning, one of the great questions, of course, is what is the relationship between Jude and Second Peter? What's what's the nature of that literary dependence? Um, and and sort of the consensus of scholarship seems to go back and forth. Everything I'm reading now seems to indicate that the consensus of scholarship is that Jude came first, and and Second mm -hmm. Peter was, in essence, making use of Jude. Mm -hmm. um, but and and if that is the case, uh, the the best argument would seem to be that it's another version of this sort of antinomianism. It it tends to result, both Second Peter and Jude are concerned that this is gonna result in you know immoral living. And uh, when I piece it together, it seems like putting all the pieces together of what Peter and Jude say, these are people who are denying that Jesus is coming back. So they, they don't think there's a second coming. They don't think there's a final judgment. And therefore they don't think there's any compelling reason to adopt the strict morality mm. Uh, of Christianity, so it's kind of a believe in Jesus and be saved, but let's not let's not put too much emphasis on this this final judgment, which may not be happening anyway. That's my sense. Any, anybody want to correct that or update that? I, no, I would, a lot of heads shaking. No, no, I I would agree. I would add one thing that I find fascinating yeah. about some of these extreme statements about false teachers is, that in the vast majority of cases, it's criticizing how they live out their faith, mm -hmm. not. Yeah. just yeah. what they believe, yeah. which is also important. They deny the master who bought them and so on, but what they actually do with their faith. Yeah. And I think sometimes we kind of read uh, scripture, assuming it's all about the conclusions they reach. It is that, but it's also how they live, how they carry the name of Christ or dishonor the name of Christ by means of their actions. And I find that just kind of an interesting. Yeah, the connection between root and fruit is real strong in the early heresy issues, right? And in essence, the assumption is that wrong beliefs will uh, will out themselves through wrong behavior. And uh, that, that seems to be the case in both of these letters for sure. Uh, Wyatt, do you wanna take a stab and uh, introduce for us Revelation? Just something easy to get you started. We wanted to obviously give you a chance to ease your way in. That's great. Um, <laughs> well, you know, and first of all, tell us why okay. you've been, I, you know, it's not like I stalk you on social media or anything, but. Uh, it would seem like 50% of your tweets and, and uh, Facebook posts in the last uh, four months or whatnot have been about Revelation. Obviously, you've, you've been studying the letter. Yeah, I mean, my, my social media is essentially the thoughts I'm having based on my devotions or, or thinking. So you, you're right. <laughs> it's pretty much all been Revelation. Yeah. So why? Um, you know, I've had a bit of a lifelong interest or a, a Christian long interest, at least in the book. Right. I um, came at it originally at more of a, a dispensational perspective. Um, and later I've just grown and grown to understand it more and more. And, and finally, I think maybe it was last fall, I was like, I just need to dig into this book to understand it. Yeah. And then there's more than that. I'm, I'm teaching a Bible study on it. Um, I'm trying to write a, a publication with the book of Revelation in mind. And I'm also planning a uh, podcasting series on the theology of Revelation for this fall. So I try to kind of love a lot of things together when I'm doing one thing. So yeah, yeah. it's a fourfold kind of end. 
that said, get into the book of Revelation. Uh, I think everyone knows that the impression we get when we come to Revelation is that it's a book on which people disagree. And I think though, that's a bit misleading, meaning there are places where people disagree, but really it's mainly a few verses in Revelation 20. And then beyond that, it's kind of when things happen. But if you look at the vast majority of Christians, we mainly agree on the main points of Revelation. It's a revelation of Jesus Christ to seven churches. Bad things are going to happen, but God is in control. The lamb is on the throne. God is in the throne room. And in the end of the day, there's going to be a new heavens and new earth and Satan loses. It's easy to read this book and think that it's a book that nobody understands and everybody disagrees on. But I think when you get to the heart of it, the central message is still there. So what is the central message? How do we introduce it? Um, I would say just very simply, uh, the book of Revelation is about how after Jesus ascends into heaven, he begins to rule in heaven. But but what happens on earth is confusing. There's a little bit of chaos. Uh, In the seven churches addressed, you have false teaching. You have sexual immorality. uh, You have uh, persecution. A guy named Antipas is dead, possibly a pastor of one of the churches there. And very soon there'll be even more persecution coming. And so in light of all the chaos that you see on earth after Jesus ascends, this book is a letter from Jesus to seven churches to tell them, here is heaven's perspective on the chaos of earth. I'm in control. We win this, guys. And some of it is extremely relevant, I think, to our current situation. We're going to talk a little bit about it later, but the four horsemen of the apocalypse, they come from the throne room. Jesus sends them. And some of what they bring is inflation. Uh, famine and plague. Now, if that doesn't sound relevant to today, I don't know what is. Mm-hmm. And therefore, what Revelation teaches us about re- that uh, this situation, I think, is that, you know what? God is still in control, and the chaos and defeat we see on earth is really the victory that we have in the Lamb. Meaning the Lamb is shown in the throne room as the Lamb slain. He's not the Lamb in triumph per se, but he's a Lamb who triumphs because he was slain. Mm-hmm. And so the book opens, fascinatingly enough, by saying that this is the testimony of Jesus Christ. And then John says, I'm a, uh, I testify. And then the church is given the task to testify. Then in chapters 10 and 11, both John and the church are given the task to prophesy about Jesus Christ. And so we find, I think in this book, to make it real simple, Jesus is in heaven, we're on earth. While things look bad, we're called to testify to Jesus Christ. And we get to see heaven's perspective of that testimony. And heaven says, this is victory. Well, Earth says we're triumphing, triumphing over you. And so I would say that. Then very basically, I, I think the book is probably separated into four parts. And you can see that by the phrase in the spirit, which is in 110, 5, 2, 17, 3, and 21, 10. And they're kind of these logical divisions. So you, you, the first part is Jesus, the son of man, and he talks to the seven churches. That's part one. The second part is chapters like 14 through 16, which is the chaos on Earth. Chapter 17 and following is sort of an escalation of all of this in a different perspective. And then 21, 10 and following is kind of the end of all things. And I think the book is separated by the phrase in the spirit. Now, there's other ways to do it. I just think that's a safe one. It's already in the text and it seems to be the kind of logical break point. So that's kind of my summary of the book. But I'm sure other people have insight and things that they could add to. Sure. Does anyone Anyone else want to want to jump in and and add their thoughts? Tell us, uh, you know, how they've calculated the end of time, or 
Uh, <laughs> hey, what's hopefully the not. 666 mean? <laughs> yeah. Now, anyone want to jump in and add to that? Just a thought whenever you were talking, I know, Pastor Paul, you have talked about this in um, Into the Word Past, the division of it. And I can't remember the terminology. It's like a literary term of how it's the almost like a nesting doll. It's the same story, but oh, progressive parallelism. Yeah. yeah. I don't mm. know. That may be helpful too of looking at because sometimes when you're mm. reading it, it's hard to, we read very um, logically, yeah. this is the start, this is the end. But then that's not the way in which the book of Revelation is really written. It's more, con and the same would be true with like Isaiah, other books as well, or Daniel, they're broken up. Yeah, into it's called sections. dischronology, yeah. right? Which is one of the hardest things for uh, Western readers to wrap their head around. A ton of the Bible actually um, features dischronology. And as, as Western readers who are very much trained uh, to, to think in linear uh, sequence, we anytime we encounter dyschronology in the scriptures, it, it throws us for a loop. And and I would say not only is, does Revelation feature dyschronology, um, but of course it's 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 apocalyptic genre, right? So which is very unusual. Apocalyptic genre it means it's more the Book of Revelation is more like an art gallery than it is like a newspaper filled with articles. Um, and there are these paintings, and all the paintings are 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 painted in colors borrowed from Old Testament canvases. So if you don't know your Old Testament, if you're not familiar with this chronology, and if you think it's a newspaper or an essay, you'll, you'll make a complete hash of it. Uh, so it, it really does require you to get into the Eastern mindset, get into the Hebrew mindset, get into the Old Testament mindset uh, in, order, in order to interpret. Mm -hmm. uh, so why, I don't, I don't wanna put you on the spot, but I'm also just curious. Uh, there are, in general, I mean, I've heard people list as many as 10 different interpretive models uh, but really, there are only three, uh, and then just variations on those three. Uh, so there's sort of the, the futurist model. You, you mentioned that you began reading it as from a futurist perspective, the, the premillennial dispensational uh, perspective. Uh, there is the preterist model, wherein it, it's understood as describing things that most, mostly have already happened other than the last couple of chapters. And then there's the historicist model, which was the model favored by uh, the reformers and the Puritans and whatnot. Uh, how... Which of those, if, if any of those, uh, reflects the way that you're reading it? Yeah, I would say I'm a bit of a mutt. Um, I would actually add the idealist view as well, where these are perpetually for the church. Um, so, but that, that, that said, that's actually a derivative of the his, historical. Oh, maybe it is then. Okay. Yeah, that, 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 that in essence, really the historical perspective would su suggest that this is what it's doing is is showing us a, a paradigm or a pattern that plays out all throughout history. Meaning, it this is what did happen. This is what is happening, and this is what will happen in particular uh, in the in the time just before the coming of Christ. That, which is similar to the idealist version, is it not? Yeah, I guess uh, that would be. Okay, I was misunderstanding what you were saying. I suppose then. Um, yeah, I, I would say this that I think from the point of view of the time of writing, it's the near future, and that's because mm -hmm. verse one says this is about what soon will take place. Yeah. Verse three says the time is near. It's addressed to seven churches. Um, yep. Therefore, it's for those seven churches. Uh, there are obviously some future, very future elements like the new heavens and new earth. But I, I actually read it just like any other letter in the, in the Bible. The letter to the Romans. Who's it written to? The Romans. When? Well, when the 60s probably. And yet all of us read it today as if it's relevant for yeah. us. Well, okay. Yeah. Well, listen, Revelation is a letter. Verse 4 says, John, to the seven churches in Asia. It's an epistle. 
Now, it's an apocalyptic prophetic epistle, so it's unique. But nonetheless, yeah. it is for these seven churches in Asia Minor, Turkey. And it's relevant precisely for them in their first century context and near context, so the near future as well. And yet, I think it speaks to realities that are perpetuated through history. There yeah. is a battle between exactly. the dragon and the lamb, but we know the we know the result. There is some historical past pieces too. I think Revelation 12 says that when Christ ascended to heaven as the son of man, he sent his angelic host after Satan and a third of the angels. They dropped to heaven or to earth. Now they're bound during the period that we live in until the end of time. And therefore, they cannot deceive the nations where the church is because the church testifies to the truth of Jesus Christ. So there is a bit of past, there's a bit of future. Um, but nonetheless, I see it primarily as two of these seven churches about their near future, about events that will soon take place. And like any other letter in the Bible, uh, I think it has abiding relevance and application to us today. Mm -hmm. My millennial view is um, historic primo. Okay. And that means I think that Jesus will return and establish a kingdom on earth yeah. that will fold into the new heavens and new earth. And I think practically it's almost the exact same thing as on millennialism. There's almost no difference. So uh, there's either a two stage or a one stage future is why I say that. And I would read the, I would read the book just similar to a guy like G.K. Beale. But I have a two stage now, future. G.K. Beale is, is an omelette. Exactly. But, but yeah, but so you're saying as a historic premillennialist, you, you're not having any significant interpretive differences. No. Only Revelation right. 20. And even then, it's to me not a huge deal, <laughs> the difference there. And I know that's an odd yeah. thing to, to say because some of the, our recent past has shown a, a great division on that chapter. But I yeah. think what you really have historic. Uh, Dispensational premillennialism has a very specific way of seeing Revelation 20. The other groups, whether you're pre, all, or post, uh, are, are actually very similar in how we understand its present relevance today. There are sure. some particular differences, of course, but it's not massive. Good. Well, I, I think that's an excellent introduction. I, maybe it would be useful to readers to just in 30 seconds, uh, you know, take 30 seconds to explain that term Miranda, uh, Miranda introduced, progressive parallelism. Yeah, I would call um, it, oh, sorry. That's a, that's a, well, I'm, that's a term that comes from uh, Hendrickson. Uh, I believe he was the the originator of the term. Did you want to explain that to us, why? Yeah, I, I'd if probably you can, would, I would use the word recapitulation. That's the word I know. And that means... Yeah, that's exactly. Yeah, that's okay. that's another version of the same term. Then, then again, uh, look, the book itself is, is saying the same thing from different angles. It's repeating cycles over mm -hmm. and over with some progression. So you have at the beginning... Um, seven seals that open up but the seventh seal is actually seven uh trumpets i believe memory serves and yeah that's that's where it was like it's like the russian doll yeah it's like the russian right? doll and they keep opening yes. up and each of the right. each of it is pro, it's progressing it's more intense until you get to the bowls yeah. which are the most intense so it intensifies but really it mm -hmm. seems to be the same thing kind of cycled over and over in order to tell us look all the chaos you see uh, all the the persecution the famine all of this heaven's in control and there's always going to be limits. So the uh, the seals, mm -hmm. you can only touch like a quarter of the, the earth. After that's a third. And then after that, it kind of escalates. But there's always a limit. In fact, yeah. there's a point where um, John hears, I believe, uh, seven thunders. And he hears a voice from heaven. And it's like, don't, don't talk about those. We can't yeah. let those out. And I think if that's you let right. those out, it would be the idea that massive decimation. But God is always preserving and protecting his creation. And therefore, it's a partial and not total destruction of all things. 
because an ultimate renewal. I, I have a great analogy that that's it's quickly going out of style, meaning it used to be very helpful. And I suspect that uh, within two or three years, no one will have a clue what I'm talking about. But uh, do you remember back in the day when you had those overhead transparencies? Brother Steven, you remember that, eh? When we, when we were doing, uh, when we first introduced contemporary worship choruses, a teenager would sit at the front of the church and, and put those worship slides on the transparency machine. Well, I always say to people that, you know, the book of Revelation is kind of like this. It's, there's, there are two fixed anchors, right? Everything happens between the ascension of Jesus Christ and his return. So those are the fixed anchors. But then what happens is the story of what happens between those two anchors is told again and again and again, over and over and over again, in a variety of different ways. Each one of those tellings is like a transparency slide. So you put the first one on and you look up and you get the general idea. And then another one is put on on top of that. And it adds dimensions, layers of understanding, more detail. And then another, and then another, and then another. But they all end with the climactic return of Christ. That's the end note of them all. That's where That's the pin that you can put in in order to arrange them. Uh, they, they don't go further than that in the sense, other, until you get to the last two chapters. They're all ending with that climactic return. But as each transparency slide is added, new detail, new understanding, new dimensions uh, are added. That's progressive parallelism as I understand it. Now, again, that, that analogy probably only has about three or five more years of, of utility, and then no one will have a clue what we're talking about. So your job, Jesse, I don't know if I understand what you're talking about. Modern version <laughs> if of, you're 30 and under. You're 40. <laughs> What's a projector? <laughs> did, did, do, you, do any of you guys remember the, the, the projectors, or is that just Steven? Yeah, the projectors. I've never heard of it called as a transparency. Uh... <laughs> oh, no, oh, I, I used to, one of my jobs in the youth ministry was writing with a, with a marker on the transparency so that you know you could put the worship lyrics up <laughs> very exciting it's funny though how we all have our own language because i've heard that uh progressive parallelism as coming like wide from a more of a dispensational upbringing um as we got into as a telescopic uh view of revelation that it's, it's like a telescope yeah. so yeah you back, it cycles itself through right but it's yeah, prophetic telescoping that's another term yeah uh, so but i i think in light of what this is going deeper it's interesting listening to us how vast and deep and wide the interpretive attempts have been at revelation and i think it is important for the audience to realize that when we say going deeper it doesn't mean bogging yourself down in the minutiae of argumentation but actually seeing this book for what it was a letter written to churches to challenge them about behavior how to see the world around them confidence in their savior all those things i remember when i was in seminary very interested in the book of revelation of course in the world i was raised in the revelation was almost like the star wars book at the end of the bible and um you know, i was very challenged to as a young guy thinking god's calling me the pastorate to be saying to say stephen if you don't have a pastoral theology and application to the book of revelation then you're missing the boat altogether and i would say to the mm -hmm. to the christian if you don't read revelation with the idea of how does this apply to my life as I live it out and become like Christ, trust in Christ, those types of things. And it doesn't promote an, an attitude of humility with confidence um, and some mystery. I think sometimes for the maybe people that are new to Christianity, they think I either have to read it and understand all of it, or then maybe it's all, no, there, it's okay to have some mystery in scripture because that's what- Calvin didn't know what to do with it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Because I think some people are either- obsessed with revelation or absolutely yeah. terrified of it and, and it's, i'll tell you this as the church begins to suffer 
I think our appreciation of the book will increase. Uh, it speaks yeah, to it, it speaks to anyone who is suffering. It is interesting that Wyatt said that he's more of a, a mud. He used that mud. in Newfoundland. We use a more sophisticated Hind Fifty Seven thing, um, in the sense of of. I think as the West does realize that Christianity is much more in the minority and marginalized, there will be much more of a humility that this is not an exact thing. And, and right. we'll start looking to all our other sections of the world. I, as I got older, I realized I, I even read the book of revelation very much as an, as a Westerner and oh, sure. realized, realizing that, you know, how yeah. do people in China or Indonesia yeah. or the middle East that are suffering persecution and how did they see it? And it was almost like we built interpretive grids that were we we were almost the heroes of it. And and so yeah. I love when I hear brothers and sisters talk about this with a, a great deal of excitement and yet some mystery and humility. But yeah. man, this is a I mean, Revelation is one of my favorite books for no other reason but the the warmth of feeling close to a savior who's got this. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, as yeah, I sometimes look and the more chaotic the world gets, goodness. Yeah. the more comforting that is. Yeah. yeah, for sure. All right. Well, unless I've missed one, uh, that's that's all the new books that we encountered this week. Uh, hopefully that sets you up uh, to, to engage these these books and, and profit from them and enjoy them in your quiet time. Uh, I want to go back, though, to, to uh, the first column of our reading, something we read this week in Deuteronomy 6, 4 to 9. So uh, you'll probably recognize the passage. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise, shall bind them as a sign in your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Over the last couple of weeks, one of the main themes that it, it feels like we're encountering, maybe it's just me, but it feels like we're encountering this theme of how important it is and also how difficult it is to pass on faith uh, to the next generation. That was also, I was uh, working on a podcast for Psalm 78 a, a few weeks ago. And that's one of the main themes. Like it's a, it's a recapitulation of the history of Israel. And the psalmist perspective seems to be that basically we didn't lose this at the national level. Uh, we lost it at the dinner table. We, we lost it at the, at the familial level. Uh, so Psalm 78, 5 to 7, he established a testimony in Jacob, appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children that the next generation might know him. And it goes on, though, to say that the, that's where the project failed. They did not keep God's covenant, but refused to walk according to his law. They forgot his works and his wonders that he had showed them. And I, I wrote a note in the margin of my Bible right there it is really hard to pass on faith from one generation to the next. One generation falls and is rescued, but the next generation often refuses to see the lesson and just ends up repeating the same mistakes over and over again. So much life is wasted in such ways. Uh, it, it, it is, it, it, that's one of the main themes in scripture, how hard it is to pass on faith to the next generation. And so I thought maybe we could bless our, our readers, our, our listeners, I should say, just by maybe sharing some of, of what we're doing, some of, of uh, what we've learned maybe from our parents in terms of passing on faith from generation to generation. Because I know it's something everybody struggles with. We need God's grace, but some of that grace we receive through the ordinary means of, of Christian community like this. And so, uh, Brother Stephen, uh, I know you, you've got uh, a wide range of kids and even uh, grandkids now. 
So I know you're engaged in this process. Why don't you start us off? Tell us what you're doing as a dad and as a granddad to, to pass on faith. Yeah, you know what, Deuteronomy 6 has always been a massive part of my life. I My parents came to Christ when I was five, um, two weeks apart. And so I, I just remember right from that age, my you know, the idea of daily devotions, uh, family devotions, all those things. But then the other part of it, as much as I remember parts of, of my, our family devotional time, some of it, I have to be honest, is quite humorous of what I remember of our family devotion times, my father falling asleep while the rest of the family prayed. And then he was dead asleep by the time we got to him and mom having to nudge him and wake him up and, and <laughs> stuff like that. Uh, uh, you know, um, I've had one of my kids fall asleep in family devotions, <laughs> but I've never done it. Wow. Yeah, that's, and then that's I remember impressive. ourselves, you know, when Deb and I got allowed us to have children, um, how were we going to instill in them uh, these things? And, you know, we went through the ups and downs. I want to caveat all this, though, with with things for our parents is that to remember any of these commands, there, there's no formula and it's not about success or failure. It's about mm-hmm. faithfulness and 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 to realize that you're still going to go through seasons with your kids. Um, yeah. I think sometimes one of the reasons it's hard to pass faith on is because we can be lulled into thinking Hey, I read the Bible. They tell me to do A, B, yeah. and C. I did A, B, and C. How come it didn't spit out godly kids at the other side of this? Because only God can save our children. Um, yeah. And and for Amen. our parents not to lose faith when they go through valleys. So, you know, as Debbie and I have lived life now with adult children, and our our baby girl just turned eighteen on Sunday. So now we they're all adults. Um, uh, by the world standards. And now we have two grandchildren. Um, the one thing I'm th- thankful for my parents, because I was a very rebellious teenager. I ran away from home when I was 14 years of age. And yet my mom and dad were faithful to have family devotions. My dad talked the gospel, lived the gospel, you know, the whole idea of talking it, walking it dad, everywhere yeah. I went with my dad, he did it. But my dad didn't go through that season of my rebellion and then say, well, family devotions doesn't work. This doesn't work. That the, the moment God brought me back to my dad at when I was 16, we started having family devotions again. Like that, that never changed. Yeah. And one of the biggest things that influenced me being drawn to Christ and one of the things I am trying to live out for my children is I watch them go through various ups and downs in their walk with God and how God is working in their lives to save them and mature them is that I don't doubt God and say the system doesn't work because I've gone through a rough patch um, and stuff like that. And then, or comparative righteousness, look at the parents whose kids are really good and go, well, what are they doing? I got to mimic them. Or then look at the kids that are failing and go, whatever they did, I won't do what they did. Um, I think yeah. this is the call. if you read the Old Testament, especially in these Psalms, you, you hit on it in one of your passages. It's, it's that the, 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 the parents started to doubt God's faithfulness. And I think when, as children, I rebelled against God. I did a lot of things. But the one thing my father gifted me was through all the ups and downs, I never saw my father doubt God's faithfulness. He stayed mm. faithful to the Lord. And that was a great testimony to me. And so as I live out my Christian life to my children and my grandchildren, as we watch them go through highs and lows, good times and bad, I want them to always see no matter what life is, dad won't doubt God's faithfulness and he stays the course. 
Um, but I will tell you, it's hard to trust the souls of your children and your grandchildren yeah. to God. You really want to get in there and you want to make it happen when really the call is to be faithful. So, you know, my experience, so I, I just, sorry, to bring this all around, interestingly for us, we, we tried various ways of having family devotions, how to make things, because my children were blessed. We were in a church that had youth groups, Sunday school, Christian school. I mean, my kids had every glorious opportunity of being bathed in spirituality. Um, the most effective thing we did was right at the supper table, as soon as supper was over, we read systematically through Fox's Book of Martyrs. And yeah, cool. my children were gripped by hearing stories of men and women laying down their life for Jesus. Um, and that caused more conversations. That was the richest season. So I would say that every parent kind of mm. needs to figure out their children boys, girls, maturity level, where they're at, what grips them, and, and say, okay, what is the means by which I can, you know, what was it, C.S. Lewis, when he said, I wrote the Chronicles of Narnia to capture the imagination of my grandkids. Yeah. You, you know, I think we, we have to be creative as parents to realize what are the personalities of my children. And so that was the most effective season of family devotions Debbie and I ever had, was cool. just impressing that upon them. Anyone else want to jump in there and share something that was helpful, either that they've done as parents or that they've experienced as kids? Yeah, our family used to have prayer nights where we used to get together and pray for one another uh, for the week ahead. Uh, a lot of our family devotions, I would say, were probably more organic than structured, uh, like kind of like verses seven to eight, you know, as you rise, as you go. Uh, I don't know if that sounds unorthodox. Um, but it certainly wasn't very structured, but it always got done. I just found that usual conversations at the at the kitchen table for dinner. Uh, we were asking each other, you know, what the Lord speak, been speaking to you in the scriptures today? What have you been reading? Or what does this mean? You know, I've, I've been wrestling with this. Um, uh, you know, we never really had a structured program. But I found that, that actually the greatest period of growth in my Christian life was during my teenage years where my dad was not just my father, but he was also a brother in the faith. And we would spend hours together. I mean, hours wrestling with the scriptures and praying with one another. And it was a lot more spontaneous than structured. Uh, so I'm not saying I necessarily recommend that method to, to everyone, but there's, there's a lot that goes to say um, when, when your dad is growing in his faith, and you're growing in your faith and you're able to rub each other's shoulders, iron sharpening iron. There's a lot, there's a lot that goes for saying um, with regards to the organic growth there. Yeah. yeah, I agree with both of you guys. Clint, have, uh, Clint and I, my husband and I have found it useful to have both intentional times and then also spontaneous times with our boys. You know, when you're, as you walk along, as you lay down and rise up and, and all the time. Um, for us, I think, like Steve, the dinner time has been key for us, is just being intentional to carve out that time at dinner that we're face-to-face. -face. And it's really hard. Like, my boys are between 9 and 13, so there's the temptation to really crowd in extracurricular activities in the evening. But, um, you know, just having that time at dinner has been significant for us. We don't try and do too much, you know, something that's sustainable, but we've gone through, like, confessions of the faith. Uh, New City Catechism has been really helpful because um, it's hard sometimes to talk to kids about the Trinity or the person of Christ and not say something accidentally heretical or just overly complex. Um, <laughs> you know, we also, lately we've been doing the uh, Robert Murray McShane reading plan for about the last half a year. 
Um, and this has just been a huge favorite because my kids are old enough to read through a chapter or two and then we just talk about it together. Um, and that's been uh, fruitful as well. So I think one thing that's just been so helpful with this pandemic is that everything's been cut out and it's sort of like we get to start again and choose, yeah. oh, this is kind of nice to not have so much stuff and, and look at all this extra time we have to talk about the world and, and what's going on and what they think about it and what's a biblical perspective. So something we wanna keep in mind going forward. Just one comment to kind of a different scenario. So my mom came, became a Christian whenever I was really young and she really didn't know what she was doing like so many of us. And I have just liked a testimony, a testimony of the goodness of the local church. So women stepped into my life as I was growing the Sunday school class. I mean, of course, this passage is so beautiful and so helpful because it's just like live your life and talk about God. And whatever you're doing, just be intentional with that. And I think the local church and just even we, my husband and I don't have children, but being intentional to mentor other people um, that are younger and just people who even ask, like there's a humility of saying to someone who's older and wiser in the faith, can you come alongside me? I don't have a spiritual mother. Like my mother isn't able to do that if that were the case. And having someone who's willing to do that there's such a beauty because sometimes you can feel insufficient like oh my family doesn't meet this standard and yet god has gifted us with the church where you know we have multiple mothers and fathers and grandparents and there's so much goodness in that i, I just want to add paul um i just became a parent so I, I don't have a lot of experience with this but um well you probably have experience as a son that, that is true as well. Um, but I just want to add that I think there's probably a lot of parents who are possibly watching this who just feel overwhelmed with the idea of trying to get their kids to sit down and do family devotions. They, they feel like they're not equipped. They're not ready for such a thing. And so I just want to encourage parents to, to say, start extremely small. Like, yeah. don't try to, you know, gather for 30, 40 minutes. Take 10 minutes before dinner or after dinner or even in the morning and just read a chapter of the Bible and make some comments yep. and pray and go with your day. Like, cause, cause yep. it's the word that had it, that the word is, is where the power lies. And, and you might not see fruit for even a year or two years, but as you continue to show your kids that we're committed to hearing God's word together as a family every day, even if it's for five minutes, you're going to see, start to see fruit over time if you're praying as well for your children. So I just want to encourage parents, don't be discouraged if your devotions just seem like they can't go longer than five minutes. Just dedicate a few minutes. Start there reading God's word with your with your kids. So, mm -hmm. yeah, good word. Well, I want to move into the second column of our of our readings. There was a really interesting theme that developed over the week in our readings in Isaiah uh, with respect to what we trust in. Uh, in Isaiah thirty-one to three, uh, the text says, "Ah, stubborn children," declares the Lord, "who carry out a plan but not mine." And who make an alliance, but not of my spirit, that they may add sin to sin, who set out to go down to Egypt without asking for my direction to take refuge in the protection of Pharaoh and to seek shelter in the shadow of Egypt. And so uh, if you know anything about the geography of, of Israel, they, they kind of lived between superpowers. There was the superpower of Egypt to the south and the superpower of, of Assyria and then Babylon to the north. They, somewhat analogous to the position occupied by Poland in the 20th century 
uh, with Germany on the one hand and the Soviet Union on the right. And they tried to, to play one off the other. And at this stage in their history, they thought it would be wise to uh, make an alliance with Egypt against the advice of the prophet. But then at the end of our week's readings in Isaiah 36, which we read this morning, uh, the Rabshakeh from uh, Assyria is parked outside the gates of Jerusalem with a massive army at his back. And he kind of throws this false reliance back in their face and said, what do you, you knuckleheads made your alliance with Egypt? You should have made your alliance with Yahweh, but you didn't. So he came and he sent me. So now all of a sudden Yahweh's riding with the Rabshakeh. And so he says, behold, you're trusting in Egypt, that broken reed of a staff, which will pierce the hand of any man who leans on it. Such is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who trust in him. But if you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God, is it not he whose high places and altars Hezekiah has removed, saying to Judah and Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar? Anyway, and then he goes on and he says, you trust in Egypt for chariots and horsemen. Moreover, it is without the Lord, is it without the Lord that I have come up against this land to destroy it? The Lord said to me, go up against this land and destroy it. And, and, and so here, you know, we see a common pattern in scripture that anytime God's people are leaning on something, they shouldn't be because God put uh, Israel where he wanted them. He planted them between two bullies, uh, right? It's, it's, it, this was intentional. It's not like he didn't do a neighborhood survey, uh, you know, before he established Israel where he put them. But he wanted them to have to rely on the Lord instead of playing this game back and forth. And there's this, this, this pattern that I see where every time God's people are trusting in something, instead of trusting in God, he, he kicks out the stool from underneath them. And uh, it just made me wonder, you know, what are we trusting in right now as a culture? What's God doing? I'm just trying to read the providence of God. Uh, what are we trusting in that we shouldn't be, that, that God has kicked out from underneath us as, as North American believers? That's the question I throw out to the panel. I'd, I'd be curious what you think. Crystal, maybe we'll start with you on this. Yeah, I, I like how you said, Paul, that using the um, illustration of God kicking out false um, supports, because I think that's so much what it's like, isn't it? It's almost like we have these crutches that we're leaning on and God takes them away, and then we're forced to lean on him in order to keep going forward. Um, and I think today, you know, there's so many false securities that people have. And, and, and with everything going on in the world, just all of these securities have been taken away, whether it be, you know, good health or financial security, or even a sense of, of peace and safety, you know, in this world. Um, there's so many things that, um, you know, it's tempting. They seem so solid, you know, when we're, when things are going smoothly and it seems like, oh yes, these are things I can trust in. And then, and then suddenly they're gone and you realize they're quite fragile. And really the only thing that is secure are these invisible things, not pretend things, but spiritual realities. Um, you know, and that was something I was struck with, even as I was reading Revelation this week, is that there's so much going on right now that we can't readily see before our eyes, but it doesn't make it any less real. Um, and this passage here um, in Isaiah 36, I just thought it was kind of ironic in a sad way, you know, Assyria is coming against Judah here, but it wasn't so long ago that Judah actually was looking to Assyria for help, yep. you know, and God said, trust me, and King Ahaz said, no, I'm going to trust Assyria. And now they're trying to get out from under Assyria's thumb, you know, and, and God's saying, trust me. And King Ahaz is um, looking to Egypt, you know, and making um, poor choices. But it's interesting because 
King Hezekiah is a good king. You know, he is someone who does what's right mm-hmm. um, in God's eyes most of the time. And um, it's it's just, it's a scary time. And he kind of seems like he's acting erratic, like maybe someone took one of his crutches and he's trying to find another one. Uh, so he's making poor choices. But um, in terms of your question of, you know, what do we do about it? I do think that Isaiah 37 is helpful. I know technically we haven't read it this week, but even just looking at Hezekiah's example, you know, he goes into the house of the Lord right away. He asks for help from Isaiah and Isaiah speaks God's word into his life. And then he takes this awful letter from the king of Assyria and he actually lays it out and prays over it and, and lays it out before the Lord. And I think, you know, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and so just Hezekiah's example here and going to the Lord first and dealing with him um, is so relevant for us now, you know, when we're trying to figure out who can we trust and how can we trust in the Lord. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it does feel like that's one of the benefits, you know, if you can if you can say there's a benefit or at least one of the one of the dark providences of God in this whole pandemic is it, it has kicked the stool out from underneath us. And one of the things that I I think it's revealed is that we trust an awful lot in science. Mm -hmm. Um, If I had a dollar for every time our prime minister has said, you know, science will, uh, will solve that. We're going to get the information from science. And I just feel like, you know, well, brother, it's been four months. Where is your science God? Um, And, and why hasn't your science God uh, delivered us from this plague? And uh, you know, one almost wonders whether God is waiting for uh, our prime minister or somebody to say, you know, since our science God hasn't delivered, how about we have a day of prayer or something? Yeah.